Today we're finishing our series called In His Hands, and I thought this was appropriate. It's a message for everybody, but moms, I think that, that sometimes in your stressful world, you need a little bit of peace, right? You need to understand peace because I remember I would come home when my kids were little and Janie's like, I got to get out of the house. You know, you're on duty and she'd check out and, and I wouldn't know where she'd go. And, you know, she'd come back a much nicer person. And I learned early on that no matter the cost of, of Mother's Day out, it was worth it. And I remember the day she celebrated when we went from one day of Mother's Day out to two days a week of Mother's Day out. And it was, it was a good thing. Now, I want you to think about, have, have any of you ever been on a plane when it was going through such severe turbulence you thought it was going down? Anybody been on one of those? I was coming back. I was in a choir at uh, Baylor. I was a, a church music major way back when, and we flew out to California one time. We are coming back on Southwest Airlines. Nothing against Southwest, but when you're coming in, we had to touch down in El Paso, and there was some serious wind going on in El Paso. I mean, so like when we're banking a turn and the wind would hit us and you turn, I'm, on, I'm at the window seat and I'm actually looking straight down at the ground and I'm thinking, dude, we may not make this. And, and so we're, there's 60 of us on the plane. There's 120 people on there. 60 of us are from Baylor. And, and I've never seen as many barf bags. There were barf bags everywhere. And, and the thing that, that got my attention that I still remember to this day is when you think you're going down, all of a sudden you get real spiritual, Right? <laughs> I mean, Satan could walk down the aisle. He could put your biggest temptation right in front of you, and you're like in this zone of untemptability. You wouldn't care because when you're about to go down, you get focused on God, right? You're not thinking about the shrubs. You're not thinking about unpaid bills, the lawn. You aren't mad at anyone. You forgive everyone. You begin confessing your sins to God and anybody that will listen. And, uh, you know, you, you just, you're thinking that things are out of control. And when things are out of control, the natural tendency for most people is to draw near to God. And um, if you think about it, God gets more done during times of uncertainty than he does in all the smooth times of our lives combined. Really, the biggest lessons of your life have not come from when your life was, was running smoothly, right? The, the, the times you learned the most about yourself and about God was the rough periods that you've gone through. And that's because when things go well, we tend to drift away from God. God even told this to the Israelites in the Old Testament. He said, when you go into the promised land, you're going to be tempted to think, we did all this. Everything is great because we did this. And he said, you're going to drift away from me. And that's what we do. We drift away from God when things are smooth. But man, when things turn bad, most of us turn to the Bible, turn to God, and we discover that the Bible is the most relevant book on the planet because it's the record of God's faithfulness to both faithful and faithless people. Every story is about average men and women who discovered God during uncertain times. And what they discovered was God is, a, is an expert at taking care of his family when all seems lost. We're going back to, we're going to finish up the series kind of as we, how we started with Romans 8, 28. And it says this, we know that God is always at work. Now, Jesus said this here, Paul is saying this, God is always at work. This is the part we don't get because we don't always see it. This is the spiritual side. God is always at work. During a job loss, God is at work. God is at work during finals. Most of our college students have finished finals, so they're not worried about that one until next semester. God is always at work during relationship issues. God is always at work during death, destruction, hurricanes, earthquakes, divorce. God is always at work. And what is he working for? The next part of the verse. 
for the good of everyone who loves him. God says, I will work for your good if, if you love me, if you're a part of my family. And he says, they're the ones that God has chosen for his purpose. Okay, so you say, well, great, that's awesome news. God is working, I can't see him working, that's awesome. I'm praying, it doesn't seem that God's answering my prayers. What do I do while I wait for God to show up? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because some of my favorite verses are in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And now, i got to give you a lot of backstory on this, and you'll understand why in just a minute. Now, Philippians was written by a man named Paul. He was a Jewish man who started churches all over what we call Europe. So this born and raised and highly educated, in fact, he was the most educated Jewish man of his time. He was studied under the best teacher, and then he became one of the best teachers. He goes into a Greek society, and he says, I've got a brand new belief system for you. Everything you've ever believed about God is wrong. He said, I'm Paul from Jerusalem, and you need to believe in Jesus, who was God's son and lived a sinless life, and he died on a cross as payment for your sins, and then he rose again after three days, never to die again. He said, God loves you so much that he sent me to tell you the real deal. And if you just think about that, that little capsule right there, you wonder, how did Christianity ever get started in the first place? Because this is kind of a crazy deal for this guy, this Jew, to go around Greek places and say, hey, you need to believe in this, in this Jew named Jesus. But somehow people believed his message that Jesus was the Messiah. And Paul started churches all over Europe. One of the first churches he started was at Philippi. And then he leaves Philippi and he travels around. That's all he did. He went around and planted churches. He got them established and then he would go somewhere else, plant a church. And eventually, at, towards the end of his life, he decides to go back to Jerusalem. Everybody told him, don't you dare go to Jerusalem because everybody wanted to kill him. But Paul said, I've got to do it. So Paul goes to the temple in Jerusalem. An angry mob drags him out of the temple because they couldn't kill somebody in the temple because that would offend God. So they were going to beat him to death outside the temple because that's okay with God. But anyway, they drag him out. And then the, the Roman soldiers see that there's a riot breaking out. They come, they arrest Paul to save him from the angry mob. And they're going to take him to trial. The Jewish leaders make up some crazy charges against Paul. What they really wanted to do was they wanted to try him in another city. And as they were going to take him from one city to another, they had gotten all these assassins. They were going to take Paul out. This is all in the Bible, by the way. I'm not making this stuff up. They were going to take Paul out. They were going to kill him because he, they didn't want somebody like Paul around. And so Paul, here's what he did to make him mad. He, he told non-Jews, he said, you can worship the Jewish God but you don't have to become Jewish. You can be loved by the Jewish God, but you don't have to do all of the Jewish customs. You don't have to eat certain foods. You don't even have to obey all of the law of the Old Testament because Jesus came and he fulfilled the law and now you obey Jesus. You just accept God's son and the Jewish God will adopt you into his family and the Jewish leaders were ticked. So they wanted to take him out. Paul gets wind of this and so he says... Um, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, and so I appeal to Caesar. Now, Caesar was the Supreme Court back in that day. And so if somebody, if a Roman citizen said, I want to be tried by Caesar, you had to take him to Caesar. So they put him on a ship, and they send him to Rome. Well, for two weeks, this storm comes and pummels them, and they're lost at sea. Two weeks, all right? We think about the, uh, the triumph, you know, the carnival triumph. I've been on that ship, and it's kind of a... Y'all are going on that ship pretty soon. Um, it's kind of a, a crazy thing that we saw for five days they were off course. But they weren't lost. We knew where they were. They just couldn't get off. You know, they had tow, uh, little tugboats going across the Gulf... These guys were in a wooden boat, no electricity, no navigation systems, completely lost for two weeks. 
Paul is chained in the middle of the boat in the storm of the century. Eventually, the ship wrecks. It breaks apart on the reef. They swim onto the shore, and they're stranded for three months. All right, you're getting this guy does not have good luck. If you're just talking about luck, we went to Asian City last night, got our little fortunes. If you're talking about good fortune, Paul didn't have it. Three months, he's stranded on this remote island. Finally, they get him to Rome, and the soldiers take him into house arrest, which means he's still chained up 24-7 with Roman soldiers watching him all of the time. During these two years, he writes letters to all of the churches he started all over Rome, all over Europe, and, and one of the letters he wrote was, was Philippians. So these verses I'm about to read to you are valid because of what the writer has to say. And, and let me just tell you that um, no matter what you're facing right now, because I know some of you are facing some tough times, but let me tell you something. You do not want to be the person who stands up in a meeting and tells your story right before Paul tells his story. Because you're going to stand up and you go, Oh, my life is so bad. I had a hangnail the other day. No, it's not. You're going to get up and you're going to say all of your stuff and it's bad and financial crisis and marriage relationship crisis, all this stuff. You're going to get up and you're going to say, and then Paul's going to get up and he goes, you know, I've been stoned with rocks. They drug me outside the city. They hit me with big rocks. They thought I was dead. They left me there to die. He says, I've been beaten with a whip five times. Now, let me give you the, the full understanding of this. When, when the, the Jews would beat you with a whip, they could give 40 lashes, but to make sure they didn't break the law, they would only give you 39. So do the math. He was hit with a whip on five different occasions for a total of 195 times he was hit with a whip. Then he says, I've been beaten with a big stick. When they beat you with a big stick, it was legal to give you 40 lashes with the big stick, but they, they would only do 39 because they didn't want to offend God and give you too much of a beating. So he's been beaten with a big stick 39 times. Add that together, 234 times he's been hit with some kind of instrument. And then he says, I've been shipwrecked three times. The one I told you about, that's just one. One time he spent a night and a day in the ocean. And then the time where the, I just told you about that the ship breaks up and he swims up onto shore. As soon as he gets there, they're all giving praise to God that we're, we're alive. He goes and gathers up some sticks to uh, put on the fire. As soon as he puts it on the fire, the most poisonous snake known to man comes out and bites him. And all of the people on the island go, oh, you must be guilty. Because you survived the storm of the century and now the gods have sent an animal to kill you. And, and Paul, I mean, it's funny because the, the scripture says it bites him, it sticks on his hand, he just shakes it off and they all sat around to watch him die. And he didn't die. And they're like, ooh. And then they'd start to worship him. Worship him. He's like, ooh, no, 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 don't you do that. There's one that, that I'm not even worthy to worship. And he's the one that just healed me. So you don't want to get up and... and, and argue or tell your story before Paul because nobody's going to remember your story. You really don't want to get up after him because you're going to go, I got nothing. You know, I, I, was, I was stung by fire ants 39 times. You know, that's what it's going to be like if you tell your story after Paul. And then on top of that, Paul knows that his trial is probably going to end in his death. And tradition, we don't know for sure, but tradition, the Jewish tradition says that, that one day some men showed up at his prison house quietly walked Paul outside the city, cut off his head. And that was the end of Paul's time on earth. So what this guy has lived out validates these words that I'm about to say to you. I'm about to read to you. He faced uncertain times. Is that fair to say? Just what I told you? I gave you the condensed version, by the way. Is it fair to say Paul faced uncertain times? This passage I'm going to read you, are, these are instructions to you when you face difficult, uncertain times. Do you think that's something you could use in your life? To know how to deal with that? Well, here we go. Philippians 4, 4. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And, and so I just want to get your gut level reaction. You know, Paul's going to tell you how you deal with difficulty. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And you're going, are you kidding me? That's how this dude starts. And if you didn't know the backstory, you could write him off. But, but let's figure out. It's the middle three words that matter. Rejoice in the Lord. Let me, let me put some other words in there and see if you can relate to this concept. All right? Rejoice in my new job. How many of you could know if you, if, you, if you hate your job and you're getting a new job? Or just remember the first time you got a job. Did you rejoice in your new job? Yes, everybody understands that. Or rejoice in the new baby, right? Everybody gets excited. We got a lot of pregnancies going on. By the way, some of you need to get busy because we're trying to populate this church, you know, and, and some of us are too old to have that. So if you're married, it is perfectly acceptable to have multiple children. Bible says that blessed is the man whose quiver is full, and that's talking about children, so let's have lots of babies. Our, our nursery's empty. We got three in the oven right now, but we need a few more. So anyway, if you need some, uh, count, well, never mind. We won't even go there. <laughs> if you hadn't figured that out, we'll, we'll talk to you about that. Rejoice in my new car, right? People get excited about new cars. Rejoice in my date with the new guy or girl. Everybody knows about that. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm rejoicing in it. Rejoice in my vacation. Woohoo, yeah, I saw all kinds of awesome pictures. Glad to have y'all back, by the way. It seems like you've been away forever. It's just because I'm jealous because you were at a really pretty place. So rejoice. We understand the concept. Here's what it means. To rejoice in something so much that the emotion associated with that event washes over us for all to see. You got it? So Paul is saying, the first thing we got to do is we got to rejoice in the Lord. Or here's how I said it. Number one on your listening guide. Focus on God. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul is saying, stop in the middle of your difficult situation and focus on the goodness of God. He says, I want you to look at God so intently that God's goodness, the emotion of who he is, of his goodness and his grace captures your heart and overflows for everyone else to see, right? How how many of you rejoice in the Lord like that, where you are so caught up in God that, that who he is and what he's done for you overwhelms you and you can't keep it inside? I think that happens a lot at youth camp. Because we get away from all the distractions. Or it happens at a conference. Or it happens at other places. Because we get focused on God so much that we are overwhelmed by who He is. And we cannot keep silent. We come back to our real world and we get overwhelmed with real things. And, and so, you see, I think that Americans aren't very good at rejoicing in the Lord. Because we've got so much other to be excited about and to rejoice about. Having too many good things actually hinders your ability to rejoice in the Lord because you're tempted to focus on your stuff instead of on God. But suffering has a way of drastically reducing our wish list, doesn't it? Like if you think the plane's going down, you get real serious about God. When when your life is, is about to fall apart, you get real serious about God in those situations. And Paul says, when you're there, I want you to focus so intently on God that who God is fills your heart and your soul and it bursts out. Now, do you understand why we gather every week, why the Bible says it's a priority to gather every week with other believers to rejoice in the Lord, to sing songs? The songs, proper songs, those who have the proper lyrics, when we sing, they're prayers put to music that we're singing to God. And here's what we do. We look for songs that talk about what God's done in the past. 
We, we look for songs that talk about what God is doing in our midst right now. And we, talk, we look for songs that talk about what God has promised to do in the future. And when we sing those songs, when we come together, you can worship in a crowd. And, and God allows us um, to see Him sometimes more effectively in a crowd. And if you don't gather regularly with other believers to rejoice in the Lord, your ability to rejoice in the Lord suffers. It's one of the first things you'll see when people... When people stay away from church for a while and they come back, they don't even know how to rejoice in the Lord. You think they know how to rejoice in the Lord outside the church if they're not gathering with other believers on a regular basis? No, it's impossible. And, and I'm going to tell you something. When we went to Haiti four years ago, this will be our fourth time, when we went to Haiti and we saw the utter devastation, we got up at, at 5 o'clock in the morning because everything starts happening at 5 o'clock in the morning in Haiti. I don't care how heavy a sleeper you are, you're going to start waking up because it's just so noisy. We got up and started getting ready for church because we had to be at church. I don't remember if it was at 6 or 6.30 that first year. And we're looking out the windows of our church and we're watching people walk. And some of them have walked for miles to get to a church. And they are dressed in, in absolute wonderfully looking clothes. Their whites are whiter than ours. I don't know how they do that because a lot of them, none of them have... Um, electricity or, or, or they may have some electricity, but they may not have a washing machine. They wash their clothes out. I don't know how they get their stuff so white. And when they come into the presence of God and they worship, we were shamed. You remember that, Chad? We were sitting there in awe of these people who had nothing, who were focusing so intently on God that it spilled out. And it shames me that we don't do that. We need to gather and focus on God, especially during tough times. And allow his power to flow through us. So that's the first thing. Next, in verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Okay, it's this gentleness idea that I want you to focus on. And, and here's how I said it. Don't harden your heart. That's number two. Don't let the hardness of your situation harden your heart. Because the ugliest people on the planet are hard-hearted people. Because they are consumed with themselves. Their eyes are only on themselves. And if your joy is overly associated with good times, good circumstances, then what you're doing is you're projecting to everyone else. You're demonstrating how selfish and how shallow you are because it's all about you. And you will start treating people poorly and they will see your hard heart by the way you treat them. But see, here's what Paul is saying. You don't have to allow outside circumstances to affect who you are on the inside. You have a choice. You may not have a choice about the circumstances, but you always have a choice how you respond to those circumstances. And what is the choice? It's in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. If you have your listening guide, just circle that, that word present. I know I highlighted it and, and underlined it, but that's real big. Now I want you to separate the, two word, uh, the word anything into two words. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, don't you hate it when people come up to you and they say, don't worry about it. You know, you're in the midst of something really big and just, it's, it's crushing you and somebody goes, oh, don't worry about it, honey. It's going to be okay. Don't you just want to smack them in the face in the name of Jesus? Pow! What are you talking? I never thought of that. That's the most brilliant advice I've ever heard. You have such insight into the deep recesses of my soul. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I just won't worry, you idiot. That's what you're thinking. Now, you may not say it, but you're thinking it. And you're thinking, easy for you to say, because you don't understand. If you understood, you'd be worrying too. Now, here's the thing. Paul didn't leave it with just there. He, he moved forward, and he gives us the secret to handling difficult situations without allowing difficult situations to handle you. And here it is, number three. Replace your anxiety 
with prayer. Every time life begins to pull you down, use prayer and petition with thanksgiving. And, and you're going, pray? What the heaven do you think I've been doing, Einstein? Yeah, I'm not, I wasn't even thinking about it. I was just messing with y'all saying that word. What do you think I've been doing? All I've been doing is praying. Ever since it started, all I've been doing is praying. I've never prayed as much in my whole life. What are you talking about praying? But here's the key. Your prayers have been, God, help me. God, save me. God, save my reputation. God, help that person love me. God, do something for me. The key is, is, is this next word. See, prayer, petition, thanksgiving, all of those are prayer words, but the next word, this is the key, is not a prayer word. This next word is, is present. And present literally means reveal, and it has the idea of solving a mystery. This is huge, gang. If you can get this and apply this, you'll move to a deeper level with God than ever before. It means to reveal a mystery. Now, let me explain it. Many times what we pray for is like comfort food. Not, uh, God, I need that man. Not your man, God. I need that man because I'm not content with you, God. I need that man. God, I need that job. God, I need that car. And it's like comfort food. We're praying for things that are completely focused on us. It's comfort food. On the surface, here's my request. God, my marriage, I need something in my marriage. God, I need to sell this house. God, I need a car. But what God wants to know is what's driving the request. What is it that's deep down in your gut that's causing you to make this request in the first place? God wants to know the mystery of who you are deep down. And some of you are going, well, I don't know what's driving my request. Then you haven't suffered enough to get honest with yourself and with God. And you're going to have to go through some more tough times. Because God says, I want to know what's at the core of your being. When you pray at the core, from the core of your being, it changes things. What we're actually doing, when we pray on the surface level, all we're asking is for comfort food so God will take our mind off of what we're really afraid of. And God, God says, I want you to pray, here's what I want and here's why I want it. Because what we do is we say, God, here's what I want and it's already Friday. You ever going to do what I ask you to do? God says, I don't work that way. And Paul is telling us that if you pray surface level prayers, it does nothing for your fears. Pray instead, God, here's what I want, here's why I want it, here's what I'm afraid of. That's a deeper level of praying than most of us have ever experienced. And I'm willing to bet that most of you are not going to get to that level of praying until you get into a small group and get gut level honest with a group of people about who you are. I just got to tell you about my small group. I love my small group. It's, the, it's where God moves more in my life than anywhere else. And, and we sit around in my house or we go to somebody else's house, but lately it's all been at my house. And, and I'm going to tell you, there's some ladies that came to my group that had some issues that, that they would never have guessed that they would start sharing with our group. And one of them started talking the first night. And I'm sitting there going, look at you, God. Because this is a lady who's very quiet. Most of y'all don't even know her. And she comes and she just starts talking and I'm going, whoo, this is awesome because I didn't do jack. This is God. And she starts sharing. And then somebody else starts sharing. I'm just sitting there going, wow, check this out. And as I'm sitting there being amazed, you can almost see. You can't see the Holy Spirit, but you can almost see his presence in our room connecting hearts together. And we go to this deeper level than we've ever been before. And it happens anywhere. There's small groups of believers that get together. I'm sure it happens in the ladies' study. It happened in our men's study out here and other small groups. When you get gut-level honest and you start sharing 
the things that, that you wouldn't want anybody to know? You see, our secrets are what make us sick. Our secrets are what keep us from excelling in life and, and really from getting close to God and, and being close enough that we really see Him and we're overwhelmed by His presence and power. You think that nobody knows? Somebody knows. And it's just your pride that keeps you from sharing. You get gut-level honest in a group of, of believers. Now, I'm not saying you go out and you just find some dipsticks and you start telling them because then they'll, they'll share your stuff. We don't put up with that trash. We don't like gossip around here. And we will confront it anywhere we see it because it's hurtful. Um, and, and really, it causes division. Anything that causes division in the body of Christ is sin. So we will fight it wherever we see it. But you get into a group of people. And I'm going to tell you, when, when I was in Celebrate Recovery, I did that for a year. I was a small group leader. Um, I saw some men. Actually, I'll say it this way. I saw some guys who were old enough to be men actually become men as they shared some of their deepest, darkest secrets and their fears. And I watched the Holy Spirit grow them up in front of my eyes. It's, it's amazing what happens when we do that. Uncertainty brings to the surface who you really are and who you really serve. And it projects to the world what's going on. And Paul says we need to pray and stay with God until we get to that point that we know what's driving our fears. So figure it out. Why is that such a big deal to you? Why are you so hesitant to share? Why is this driving your prayers over and over? Figure that out, and then you bring it to your Heavenly Father. And here's why it's so important. This is verse 7. And the peace of God, not circumstances, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is big. To guard means to stand watch over your minds and your hearts. Um, we're freaking out over circumstances because we've never really asked God to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I don't know what's going on here. I must be hitting it down here. Um, but God says, what if I could teach you how to have peace no matter what's going on in your life? Would that be a lesson that you needed to learn? Yes? Anyone? Bueller? Okay. True peace, the kind that human beings can't understand, comes only when we reveal the mystery of what's driving our request to our Heavenly Father, and He begins to change our hearts and our minds, and He guards us. When you do that, God says, now you're praying. Now you're beginning to look like my son. So here it is. Here's the application. What do you do while you're waiting for God to show up? This is on your listening guide. You pray until the peace comes. Heavenly Father, I need you to, you fill in the blank. Heavenly Father, I need you to do this right here. And then the next part is, if you don't, I'm afraid that... Heavenly Father, I need you to help me at work because if you don't, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my job and I'm going to feel like I'm a failure. Heavenly Father, I need you to do this in, in my marriage because I, I can't do it on my own. And if you don't do something in my marriage, God, I'm afraid not only is my marriage going to end, but my children are going to be devastated over this. I don't know what your situation is, but you stay with God until you reveal the mystery. When you reveal it, then the peace of God comes. The reason you don't have peace is because you've not gotten to that level in your relationship with God and, and in your praying. Paul, the prisoner, the prisoner, promises the peace of God in the midst of hell on earth is available to those who reveal their deepest, darkest secrets to God. And he comes in and he changes things. I want, you to, um, I want you to think about something. You can't have the peace of God until you have peace with God. 
And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have, um, they're going to play a video. It's, it's just Chris Tomlin's song, I Will Rise. But I want you just to, to kind of do some soul searching. I want you to ask yourself, if you were to walk out these doors and you were to have a wreck and you were to die, do you know for sure that you would spend eternity in heaven? Because the Bible says you can know. And I'm going to tell you how. But I want you to ask yourself, do I know for sure I'm going to heaven? And then I want you to ask yourself, what is it? Two weeks ago, I asked this, and I got some stuff on the back of cards. I got marriages, I got relationship, I got finances. I asked people, what is your greatest uncertainty, the thing that causes you to stay up at night? Got all these things written down before we took the Lord's Supper a couple of weeks ago. And, and I want you to think about that, and I want you to pray to God. God, I need you to, whatever that uncertainty was, because if you don't, here's what's going to happen, or I'm afraid this is going to happen. I want you to pray, listen to the words of this song, and then we'll finish up after this song. So just bow your heads and and do some introspection. Some of you don't know for sure if you would go to heaven. Go ahead and give me a little bit of light there. So I want to tell you how you can know that. And, and this is really one of the best gifts you could ever give your mom, is to know that, that your eternal salvation is secure, that you're adopted into the family of God. The Bible says um, in 1 John 5.11, it says... These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He who has the Son, Jesus Christ, has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. So it is possible to know that. And the way we say it around here is you just simply have to acknowledge that you're a sinner and that, that you are not worthy to go to a perfect place called heaven. And, and that the only way, according to the Bible, the only way to get into heaven, a perfect place, is to get in on someone else's ticket. Somebody had to live a perfect life, and you have to get in on their ticket. Well, Jesus Christ did that. And he sacrificed himself so that we could be adopted into his family. But you have to do that before you die. And so what we say around here is we ask Jesus, would you forgive my sins? Would you be my forgiver? And would you be the leader of my life? And when you do that, when you, when you bow down and you transfer the ownership of your life to God, the Bible says He adopts you into His family, He writes your name in the Lamb's book of life, and your eternal security is forever. That's what eternal security means. Your, your future is secure because you're adopted into the family of God. So if you want to do that, just bow your heads just for a second. We're going to finish up here. If you want to pray today, if you're not sure, then, then you just say it like this. God, I recognize I'm a sinner. And that with, without Jesus' sacrifice, I have no hope of heaven. But because your son was perfect and died on the cross for my sins, I ask you to pay for my sins with the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for adopting me into your family. Amen. It's that simple. If you prayed that today, then I want you to write that on the back of your card. Take your registration cards. We do a a couple of things with those. I ask you to write some things on there. Write on there your greatest uncertainty that you want me to pray about. If you've got prayer concerns, write those on there. I pray uh, over those throughout the week. And then um, we've got three baskets in the back. One's our joy basket. 
you can give your offering there, or you can go online. If you go to nlccp.com, there's an online giving. It's very simple to do. A lot of you have done that. That's, that's very helpful. We have another basket, our registration card basket. That's where you put what? I'm just checking. I didn't know if you checked out or if you were listening. Put those in there because I do pray for those. I go uh, Sunday afternoons. That's one of the first things I do um, before I take a nap even as I go through there and I read and see what God's doing in your life. If, if God's answered prayer, put that on there because that pumps me up and uh, just causes me to give praise to God. By the way, that song we listen to, that's one of them when I'm down, I listen to because I just get caught up in who God is and, and I forget my problems. And I think about that scene when we'll be before God's throne and we'll all be singing. Oh, it's just, it gives me chill bumps. Third basket is our bagel basket. Everything goes in there. We're trying to get out of debt. Everything goes in there, pays off debt.